and welcome back to the Sports Map Podcast. This is episode number 30. I'm your host, Nick Kane. This is the podcast where we're talking all things sports medicine, physiotherapy, rehabilitation, and return to performance. Now, in today's podcast, we welcome Matt Konopinski. Matt is a physiotherapist from the UK. He has extensive experience uh, having worked in the Premier League for many, many years, including uh, 10 years at Liverpool and more recently at the Rangers Football Club. He's now the Director of Physio and Performance at Rehab for Performance, which is based in Liverpool. Matt has a special interest in knees, uh, mainly ACL, and and I guess today we're chatting around a more unique injury, and that's the isolated LCL injuries uh, and their management. So an injury that you might only see once or, or twice every couple of years, um, but I think it's you know one of those ones that you want to know uh, how to manage, um, what's required at the time when you do come across one of those injuries, to nail that down. And, and thankfully, we, we have Matt uh, doing a masterclass on ACL for us around both return to sport testing and also nailing some of those key rehab aspects along the process. So we'll be doing that with him in Liverpool and that'll be coming out uh, shortly. So stay tuned with their masterclass platform and make sure you're not missing anything that is coming out there. Because I know Sue Mays recently has, has come through. Uh, Edna King is up there. Kevin Lieberthor with some calf injuries is some more recent aspects. And if you're into the upper limb, uh, make sure you see Leanne Bissett for the elbow and Hamish McCauley for some contact shoulder-based rehabilitation. Okay, now on the event front, our How I Rehab Conference, which is February 10th and 11th in Melbourne, is filling up. Um, make sure you're on to all the latest presenters being added there with you know, Michael G. Kermis from British Athletics, now talking to hamstring injuries, Brady Green on the calf, uh, Sophie Emery from Australian Ballet, Jane Rooney on ACL, Darren Burgess on how he rehabs to prevent further injuries. Limited spots, uh, make sure you do check that out. Can't wait to be hosting everyone in Melbourne and looking forward to that event. Okay, then let's see what Matt has to say about isolated LCL injuries. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. It's a pleasure to have you on, mate. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to this. So, uh, yeah, likewise, really looking forward to it. And it's something where I, um, you know, reached out to you some time ago, uh, having read some of your work on on ACLs and and also lateral collateral uh, ligament injuries and uh, clearly have done some great work in that space. And obviously through your background in the soccer and the football is sort of, uh, led the charge on, um, you know, bringing some really great information to the forefront for us to sort of read and learn off. Did you want to fill us in a little bit on on your background as a physio and uh, also what you're doing now? Yeah, sure. So I started off working in, in the NHS for um, around four or five years um, in the UK. And whilst I was doing that, I um, was working part-time in football with professional teams initially um, with the women's team in Leeds and then with academies, predominantly with Leeds and Barnsley. I then went full-time into football. I was working overseeing the academy at Barnsley Football Club, then became first-team physio there. Following that, I landed a job at Liverpool Football Club. I initially went there as the reserve team physiotherapist at the time, so Maybe that's a reflection of how old I am because teams don't really have a reserve team anymore. They have an under-23s team. I spent most of my time there working with the first team, actually, and my role was head of rehab. The latter stages of my time at Liverpool, I actually went on to become head physio. And from there, you know, we're 10 years on now into my career at Liverpool and 
I felt like I needed a bit of a change. I went to work with the English FA for the national football teams. From there, I had a brief stint with Rangers, and that was predominantly brief because of COVID and time away from my family. So I wanted to switch things up a little bit and reframe where I was going with that and get myself back to back home with the family. So I lectured at Salford University on their physiotherapy degree. And whilst I was doing that, I set up Rehab for Performance, which is a sports injury clinic based in Liverpool. And our ethos here is around trying to provide that elite experience in a world-class environment for the general population so that they get to experience what the fortunate few have access to. And uh, that's where I'm at now trying to push this forward lovely mate and it's an awesome looking facility and having just done a little bit of research online on that it, look, it looks really sharp with what you guys are doing um i guess for those out there uh, and maybe the football fans in a sense like obviously liverpool is one of the most famous clubs in the world it must have been a great experience uh, having to work there and um i guess what sort of fond memories do you take from that and also i guess what were some of the challenges in working in that environment that you sort of don't miss so to speak I mean, in terms of in terms of memories and what have you, an incredible experience to work in that environment and working in professional sport in a club environment like that is it, it it's really nice in terms of that there's always a short term goal turning around. You've always got the game coming in a few days' time. The turnaround's very quick, so even if you even if there's some disappointment around a result, the next the next game's coming and you're preparing for that. So there's there's a lot there's a, there's a lot to, to gain from that. Um, I think if you compare that to to working purely in uh, in in a clinic environment, you know a lot of your um, your wins are based more on longer term strategies. Um, whether that's business or whether that's a rehab, for example. Um, so although my predominant role at Liverpool was was head of rehab, you're still heavily involved in terms of the, the turnaround between games for the uh, the more healthy players. Um, but very fortunate to work in a top-class environment and then travel the world and get to experience environments all around the world as well, which contributed to producing the clinic that we've got here and how we wanted that to look and, and feel. Um, in terms of in terms of, of challenges, it's you know it, it's certainly not the the glitz and glamour um, that is often associated with it. Um, I think for the general population they're often you know we're often wowed by being able to work with these these athletes who, you know, as the Premier League in England has grown and football's continues to get bigger and bigger, they're they're all seen as as Hollywood stars virtually now. But ultimately they're, you know, they're they're human beings like you and I that just have a, you know, a particular talent. Um so you you're 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 dealing with um with 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 people and high stakes and um you know the pressure is high, so that can often be felt within the environment and within the staff group. So it's it's not plain sailing, um, and um, ultimately, you know, when you get to the very top, it's a results-driven business, and people's jobs 
are, are at risk. Um, so that carries with it high pressures. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, no doubt. And the regular stress of yeah team performance and uh, and and your job moving forward, I guess, is this always something that over overhanging your head a little bit at the end of the seasons. Um, Mate, we are we've obviously rehab perform, performance uh, there. We are we're heading there. We're I'm really uh, thankful and, and really looking forward to to heading there for a look. And we're going to run through a masterclass on ACL uh, predominantly and some of your practices around rehab and return to play. Um, I know we're talking to uh, lateral collateral ligament injuries today predominantly, but um, I guess uh, where did the interest come from in knees? And and second to that, what would we expect from from your masterclass on ACLs? So that's a really good question. I think a lot of what generated my interest in in the knee was, of course, the environment I was working in um, for most of my career, where predominantly I'm exposed to lower limb injuries. Um, I would consider myself a lower limb specialist um, and, um, you know, very much sort of a non-specialist in the upper limb just because of what I've spent so much time working with. and when I really started to delve into rehabilitating knees and um, and post-surgical guidelines, I just found that a lot of um, a lot of the guidelines um, that I was reading they didn't really marry up with 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 my clinical experience, um, and 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 also when I was relating that to to, to the evidence as well. Um, in the in the literature, things just didn't seem to marry up. I, I suppose a few examples would be most most knee effusions after an ACL reconstruction will, will persist beyond twelve weeks. Yet the majority of post-operative guidelines would insinuate that this should be a, a, a trace effusion or zero before you're loading beyond doing a straight leg raise, for example, um, and. And, and and those two things just didn't didn't sit right for me because that wasn't what I was seeing. Um, the argument between open kinetic chain versus closed kinetic chain exercises, again, there's 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 still this lack of understanding around that. The majority of of, of surgical teams, I, I feel, continue to to limit. Um, prescription of an open kinetic change in open kinetic chain in their post-operative guidelines um despite a clear lack of evidence so you know we know that we, we know that the strains are in terms of doing an open kinetic chain knee extra it, knee extension that they're, they're similar to doing a double leg squat um it, it's been shown to um to produce less strain when you when you're loading with around five kgs, it's less strain than mid stance and late swing stance phases of uh, late swing phases of walking. Um, a Lachman's test, which is done post op, produces more ACL strain than walking. So the things just didn't marry up for me. So um, I think that that really um, grasped my interest, um, and I wanted to to investigate the, these things further and. Um, only my rehab to to reflect the, the evidence and and what I was seeing clinically, rather than just following a post operative guideline from a from a surgeon. Um, I suppose the one caveat I would say is that when I was developing my practice, I would always have a an open conversation with the with the specialist 
um, and explain to them what I wanted to do prior to just pushing on and doing it so that it was a joint decision. Um, and particularly in terms of what we're going to go through when, when you come to Liverpool, um, I was really interested in how ACL reconstruction um, then um, confers a lot of detriment to performance um, at times for athletes, you know, a fairly high percentage, to be honest. Um, and and why re-injuries or contralateral injuries were occurring um, despite, you know, going through exit criteria during rehabilitation. Um, and I think that really sparked my interest in, in motion capture analysis um, and where that sits in the rehab process. So that, that'll be the foundation of what the masterclass is, is built on um, and implementing that motion capture analysis within rehabilitation and how it informs our practice. That's exciting stuff. All right. Well, as, as discussed or as mentioned earlier, we are going to chat around the isolated lateral collateral ligament ruptures today. And it's a, it's a bit of an odd topic because it's not an injury that many people would see very commonly. Um, I guess, again, the reason I reached out was I came across one of these injuries uh, that I hadn't seen before. And, and doing some research and looking at some papers out there, obviously came across some work you, you guys did for... Uh, for the Aspatar Journal and I just thought it would be a really great topic to break down a little bit uh, more around the management for when we do come across these injuries which you know we might only come across one or two in our time I guess why is it important that uh, we as clinicians need to be at least aware of the optimal management for these injuries I think it also probably depends on the environment that you're working in um, you're, you're right they, they are fairly rare to have an isolated LCL rupture um, however Within the English Premier League, the likelihood is is that they're going to, you know, each team can expect to get one every couple of seasons. So certainly there needs to be an understanding around there in terms of the optimal management. Um, the, the challenge with the LCL, I think, a lot of the time is recognition. And I think that's why um, the awareness of optimal management is really key in the early stages because it, it's, it's recognition of an injury, actually, because... You have the LCL, it's it's your primary restraint to various forces at the knee, but you've got a lot of other stabilizers around there that will provide the athlete with a subjective feeling that this is a fairly minor injury, um, despite you know having a, a complete or near complete rupture of the LCL. So you know you have your your iliotibial tract, long head biceps fem, um your anterior longitudinal ligament, your arcuate ligament, that, that can all contribute to this stability um, at that side of the knee. And recognition of the injury is really important because you want to prevent further damage um, and you also want to facilitate an optimal return to, to play, return to performance. Um, and, and I suppose to give you an example, um, I've, I've seen several of these where the injury could occur at the beginning um, of play in a field sport athlete, and they might not even, you know, report it until, you know, 50, 60 minutes time. So the ability to function can actually remain quite high up until that point. Now, that isn't the case all the time, but I've certainly seen two or three examples where that does happen. Yeah, okay. And you talked to a little bit around the anatomy there uh, and you've sort of covered off, I guess, on the interlink between a number of other different structures. Um, 
Could you talk to, obviously, you've covered that, but can you talk to the mechanism of injury and, and, if, and how that mechanism of injury may tie into some of that anatomy uh, around that site as well? Yeah, sure. So um, in, in terms of mechanism of injury, um, it typically occurs at high speed um, and it generally comprises external tibial rotation. Um, now, this might be with... Uh, with or without some various force. Um, but the, the common uh, example would be foot planted, knee flex approximately 30 degrees and external tibial rotation. That could be landing from a header, for example. I've also seen examples where it's happened during kicking, be it the kicking leg or the stance leg. Um, biomechanical studies have shown us that this degree of knee flexion with tibial external rotation is is very typical of what the support leg um, is doing during maximal intensity uh, ball striking. Um, so I've, I've seen that quite a few times. Um, and I suppose if you're relating that mechanism of injury back to the, the anatomy um, and the biomechanics, it, it, it makes sense really. So um, if we're talking about the, the LCL, specifically um it's it's extra capsular um and um and, and pencil like and it, and it feels like that when you palpate it it's probably something we'll, we'll chat about in terms of the assessment further further through the podcast i think things to consider with that is that because it's extra capsular if you have an isolated injury you would not expect to have a joint diffusion on clinical examination you would expect to have some lateral fullness at the knee um, and that's typically what you'll see on, on observation. And it's, it's generally only detectable several hours after you've actually had the injury. The FCL itself or the LCL, it's, it's posterior and proximal to your lateral epicondyle of the femur. And then it, it descends inferiorly um, and, and it inserts onto the lateral aspect of your fibular head. So within those areas, you know, you've got your lateral head of gastroc. Um, you've got biceps femoris and, uh, and, and your biceps femoris um, will often um, form a conjoined tendon um, around the site of the LCL. This might have implications for your early rehab. Um, if, you, if you've got an isolated LCL injury in that area, um, you might want to avoid dominant exercises um, that are going to... Um, they're going to target your, your long head of biceps around the knee um, in the early stages of healing. Um, now, I think when you when you consider those aspects and the fact that we know when we section the lateral collateral ligament that it's increasing the amount of varus at the knee at all angles, but most most um, obviously most markedly that will happen at 30 degrees of knee flexion then you relate that back to the mechanism that we uh, spoke of earlier and you know the external tibial rotation um in addition to that 30 degree flex knee position is going to lead you to a high suspicion of potential lcl injury if you're reviewing a mechanism of injury for, for a player and again i think I think reviewing mechanism of injury is, is important with this because at times the uh, clinical examination 
might not be so stark. Um, as I said, the the the, the swelling, the extracapsular extracapsular fullness that you might see, it's often not hugely pronounced. Um, so it's always really good to to relate the mechanism to the injury itself um, to help with your differential diagnosis. Yeah, nice. And obviously, we're talking here to the uh, to isolated LCL or, as you said, um, PCL. Um, the they we can obviously get uh, combined injuries or, or combined or, uh, LCL might come along with other greater injuries. Um, maybe we just touch on that, and then obviously um, that might we'll divert there, and then we'll come back to LCLs and how that management might be a little bit different for us. Yes, it's. it's- it's a, it's a wide discussion point now um, because the management would depend on the ligaments or structures involved and then, the, and then the severity of that injury as well. Is it a surgical case or is it a non-surgical case? So there's a lot of permutations there. And an example might be, you know, you could have an individual with a, um, a, grade, a grade two a combined ACL-PCL injury. They might have a grade three LCL injury um and that that lcl might have a, a, a an end feel when you do your various stress test that may lead you to to managing that individual with a brace um and because of the combined ligament injuries the likelihood is is that you would go for an unrestricted um range of motion within that brace if you then um compare that to an isolated uh, high-grade LCL injury, um, you're, you're likely to brace that individual based on, 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 on our experience um, with a restricted range um, and then systematic progression of that range o- over three weeks. Um, so it, it will often look quite different um, to the multi-ligament injury whereby the bracing protocol would be unrestricted and possibly over a slightly protracted period of time. Another example would then be the surgically managed um, isolated uh, LCL injury, um, or even if it was a surgically managed LCL injury combined with an ACL reconstruction, the protocol for that is likely, again, to be a restricted range, but... um, the range would differ um, in terms of that restriction because of the um, reconstructed ACL, and it would also be a protracted period of time, likely over 12 weeks versus the, the shorter period I was explaining with a conservatively managed isolated ACL, LCL injury. Sorry. Um, so I, I guess, you know, uh, just trying to summarise all that, it, it can look very different um, in each case. You know, needs to be taken on its own merit. Yeah, lovely. No, I think in the point we're sort of, I guess, trying to make there, or I was trying to make, is the sense that we're, we are talking to the isolated injury and clearly, um, you know, you can get multi-ligament presentations with the LCL, which probably doesn't fit with the, the next component of what we're going to talk to as much when we are talking uh, management of the isolated injuries. Um, so on that, uh, you mentioned assessment there. Uh, and, and to rule out uh, and think of a differential diagnosis. And I guess within your assessment, um, you're biased towards doing a, a prone virus stress testing versus that in supine. And, and what does that give you and why would you do that? In terms of the, in terms of the prone virus stress test, um, what we 
what what we really like about this, and a, a bit of a shout out to James Moore on this one, was that typically, you know, I would probably favour that test um, when there's been a um, closed chain mechanism of injury. Um, so the, the prone position will mean that the you can, you can maintain um, contact of the femur against the examination table. Um, so the limb is fixed proximally. You're reversing the injury mechanics whereby the foot's planted um, and the limb is fixed distally. Um, but it theoretically, there's, there's a greater association with the mechanism than in the supine position. Um, so, you know, the, the test is the test is is very similar, only that the uh, the, the thigh is in contact with the table, um, and there's some compression of that occurring whilst um, you're producing the varus force at the knee. You're testing at the same angles. Um, and uh, the grading system would be the same. Um, so that that would be my rationale for using it. Um, I would relate it to mechanism of injury. Um, and I think, you know, you, you were talking about, you know, key assessments and what have you. And, and again, go back to, to the mechanism of injury. We spoke about like the, the common mechanism. So as soon as as you see that, I, I think you need to be thinking, okay, could this be an LCL injury? Um, again, you know, we've mentioned the ACL. Typically, you will see um, athletes reach the lateral side of their knee when they damage their ACL. Um, and that, that could be a bit distracting, really, um, if it's, a, if it, if it's um, ACL versus um, LCL and I think if you reflect back on the mechanism you would you would expect typically to see some differences there um, but just something that you need to bear in mind when you're doing your uh, your clinical assessment other other things that are really important are, you know for me the most important uh, clinical test when when you're looking at the uh, LCL is actually palpation um, so this is this is done in a cross-legged figure four position and you're palpating the ligament for continuity and tension along its length. Again, you know, you're looking for a pain response, but often there isn't there isn't a huge amount. Um, you know, there isn't a there isn't a huge uh, neural supply to that ligament. Um, but you often will get a, a difference in tension um, within that ligament and. You, you know, at times you may even actually really be able to to push through where there's a complete rupture, be that distally or or proximally, um, and really palpate a you know a notable gap in that area. So I, I really I really like that. You know, if we're looking at tests that are specific um, to to the LCL, um, our palpation in the figure four position is is massive. Beautiful. Uh, it'd be nice to, uh, we might even get a visualization of that one in our masterclass so we can see us uh, working through that as, as well. Um, so further on from our clinical testing, uh, ultimately imaging and what does that further guide us on, I guess, from a, a grading system where we might be dealing with a, an LCL to, to, to a full rupture, I guess. Uh, how much information do you rely on from, from the MR there? And and there was some uh, mention around X-ray and ultrasound, which may be required and at times. And and or if you're going to do that, what would that tell us further? Yeah. So, um, 
in terms of imaging, X-ray wouldn't routinely be be performed. Um, if you had point tenderness at the fibular head, um, you may have concerns regarding a bony avulsion. That would probably be the only indication for getting an, an X-ray film. MRI imaging provides a really thorough assessment of the of the entire postlateral corner um, and, and the knee itself. Um, it will help us in terms of delineating any associated meniscal or articular cartilage injuries. So, yes, I mean, running through an MR, you know, briefly, uh, you know, an, an intact LCL would, would be a taut black structure um, on your uh, MRI sequences. And then the degree of edema, fiber continuity and laxity be interpreted by the radiologist and that would define the integrity of the the ligament itself so a, a lot of edema fiber disruption and laxity would represent a high-grade injury um and then complete fiber disruption plus laxity would define a total rupture um again combination of my clinical experience with um with that of others there's I'd, I'd say there's a little bit of a word of caution when interpreting MRI scans, um, whereby the amount of edema that you see um, will often overgrade the severity of the injury. Um, again, that's why it's really important that your um, your clinical examination is is good um, and don't disregard that. Um, particularly the first six weeks of injury, um, the edema can often overgrade. So. I'd, I'd advise against re-imaging um, with MRI if you're using that as a means of assessing healing and, and guiding your rehab. Just just revert to your clinical assessment um, to guide your rehab. Um, so I would I would favour in that region ultrasound. Actually, I feel it's much better for reassessment. It allows you to dynamically assess the LCL um, during the examination itself. So you can really nail the integrity of the ligament versus the MRI, which is static. Um, it's a photograph. It's a moment in time. Uh, and I also like the, the feedback that you can provide the athlete with the ultrasound, and it can be very reassuring. Usually it's, a, it, it's, a, it's at least a two-person operation, that though. So you need your radiologist and then your, um, you know, your, your clinician doing the uh, stress test. Otherwise, it becomes a bit clunky. Nice. All right. Well, um, you know, as I mentioned, the work you guys did uh, through Liverpool and a couple of the case reports on these injuries, and I guess um, most of the time you talk to the non-surgical approach for this and a return to sport that uh, was successful with a relatively short turnaround. Probably the main thing is what ones do we feel, uh, you know, for surgery and, and what ones uh, maybe for not or, um, yeah, guide us. Okay, so... Um... If, if you get, you know, a large virus on stress testing and that coupled with imaging features of complete rupture from from the tibia, uh, sorry, from the, from the femur or from the fibula, um, they would typically be surgical cases. Again, you know, palpation absolutely key in the figure four position. Um, again, ultrasound really important from a perspective of a you know 
the, the, the non-surgical side, there are adjuncts around there that can that that, that can help. Um, I think PRP is not something that I've found has changed my world really as a as a clinician. Um, however, in those early stages with the non-surgical approach, it seems to it seems to clinically help with scarring. Um, and really thicken the area up um so I'm, I'm quite a fan of it for, for this injury and this injury alone actually my my own experience um but yeah for sure the the the, the surgical cases tend to be the one where it's a, it's a complete rupture either proximally or distally um the the mid-substance uh, injuries tend to manage better um, conservatively, but also it's it's about your examination, your palpation, and you know if there's some stability there and there's some continuity remaining on ultrasound, then I would manage these conservatively and uh, possibly use some PRP along the way. Okay, and obviously if we do talk to, uh, I guess managing these non-operatively. Um, but through the rehab management start, uh, process, I might just swing back to a little bit of post-operative from a surgical standpoint as well. Um, based on what you're talking there, PRP, it sounds like also some bracing uh, in the short term. Are you using obviously a range of motion brace there? And um, yeah, talk us through that process maybe over the first couple of weeks. Yeah, so we we, we implemented... Um, uh, isolated high-grade LCL injury bracing over three weeks. Um, so I think we touched on it earlier, very different to a surgically managed LCL injury. The restricted range, once again, you know, you're not going to see anything in the literature in terms of, of what's best for this. Um, we used a range of 30 to 70 degrees um, to, to limit stress on the ligament initially. And then we just systematically progressed this over three weeks before before removing the brace. Just to give a bit of context to that, some of these athletes were were coming back in in four and a half to, to six weeks um, playing. So that protection phase we felt was really important. But again, within that protection phase, there's there's a hell of a lot that you can actually be doing. So um, it can look quite different to the limitations around bracing someone after a microfracture, for example. You know, for want of repeating myself, the, the surgically managed um, LCL injury is typically a fortnightly progression of, of range, um, starting at 0 to 30 degrees, then opening up 0 to 60 degrees, then opening up 0 to 90 degrees, um, and then unhinged um, for a period of 12 weeks um, in total. So unhinged probably for six weeks after that. Um, there would normally be um, a hamstring graft to, to provide um, the, um, the graft in that region. So, yeah, that's br- briefly, that's, that, that's the difference. Um, your non-surgical versus your surgical. Um, it's, it's, it's a protection phase, and within that phase, a lot of work to do to you know, get the individual as strong as they can be. Um, so that when the brace comes off, you can actually you can actually you know push on at that point. 
Yeah, that sounds really good. Certainly around the accelerated process with, you know, bracing between the 30 degrees and 70 degrees and uh, bringing that out for a, for a relatively fast return to play for these mid-substance um, LCLs that have non-operative. Talk us through a little bit around your early loading and I guess early to mid-stage rehab. Um, probably more focus on here around, I, I know you've touched on a little bit around the work with a, an IKD into some tibial ER. So maybe you could talk through that as well as a couple of other, yeah. I guess, the key strength areas um, to, to touch. Look, it's, um, it, it, it's not rocket science this bit. It's, um, it, it, it's, it's beginning your strength exercises um, progressing tempo, uh, intensity of load, um, and progressing complexity. So, you know, initially we'd start off in sagittal plane, make sure that you're not disregarding the coronal plane and the transverse plane. Um, but that would be more, you know, towards, towards the mid, mid stage, um, where you're getting that, that combination of, um, flexion and external rotation um, occurring at the joint. So it's, um, it, it's, it's reflecting on the biomechanics and the mechanism of injury um, and using that to inform what you're doing. You can be very confident that sagittal-based exercise initially is going to be um, comfortable for your athlete and not going to cause any issue. Again, reverting all the way back to the start when we're talking about the injuries themselves, Often your you know your player has carried on playing you know possibly forty fifty minutes beyond incurring the injury um, at all. Um, so I think we shouldn't shy away from from loading at that point. Um, and from experience, um, it's worked really well. Adjuncts around this time that you can use. I don't think this is sort of like the point to to go into much detail around them. But you know we. we BFR has just exploded in terms of an option um, to really sort of like maximize the gains um, when exercising with lower intensities, um, using, you know, an application for neuromuscular uh, electrical stimulation. Again, you know, you can, you can super compensate um, when, when you're loading um, and hit, hit frequencies of 75 to 100 Hertz um, to try and maximize these increases in, in muscle strength. It's a really good, Really good tool to use if you've got access to it. Consider whether you're using a knee or a hip dominant exercise. Um, and again, if there's any associated hamstring uh, injury, um, that could be really important. Early stages, you might want to go for more hip dominant hamstring exercises and then evolve um, that to the, the knee dominant exercises. Make sure you're hitting quad. Quad is key. Um, Get on the leg extension machine. Don't allow it to become the outcast um, in rehab because it doesn't look sexy. Um, it's the way that you are going to systematically load the quadriceps the best, um, and they they will atrophy. Um, you know, if if you can't regularly um, stimulate that muscle, um, you know what the brace does. From a positive perspective, it also has a negative in terms of, um, you know, uh, muscle atrophy. So um, hit, hit, hit the leg extension. Um, you know, it's something that's accessible in virtually all gyms. And, you know, you're achieving an equal opposite reaction force that is synonymous with, with sagittal plane deceleration. So 
it's it's more relevant than doing a vertical exercise such as a single leg squat for example you mentioned about the ikd um, for tibial external rotation so we we used this um our rationale was you know was again going back to basics um loading the injured ligament um in order to optimize collagen volume and alignment so it was a nice way of progressively increasing external tibial rotation um which which will load the lcl and you know being able to do it in a very controlled fashion in terms of fixing the flexion range and uh and the range of tibial external rotation itself so we we would start in you know a, a 90 degree position initially and then move out towards 30 degrees um further on into the rehab you know it, if if you don't have an ikd which majority of people haven't got access to that then you might have considered just manually doing this um or in a closed chain position you know um uh, it's like a, a, a monster turnout for example where you, you're getting that external tibial rotation and again you can control the amount of knee flexion that's occurring at that point so that there's there's lots of different uh different options yeah nice i was going to ask around options when you don't have an ikd but um, it sounds like it fits nicely along our progressive loading and just including that through your process whilst we're hitting um, you know, those other, other key areas you mentioned. Um, I was going to skip over this question, but uh, because it's, I guess, a straightforward one from a readiness to run point of view for these injuries. Um, but maybe you can just touch on that uh, briefly, but more probably a focus on, um, you know, running fast and offline and post these injuries. So I'm sure when you're really trying to uh, whip through the swing leg, you know, you may have some trouble or, and also with uh, the change of direction forces as well. So some guidance maybe around those things? Yeah, so the, the speed and, and straight line speed, you know, um, don't tend to be a, a problem for for the individuals. Um, and I I think that's, again, I, I think that's just down to the, the degree of external tibial rotation, the degree of knee flexion that occurs, you know, in, in, in those mid-stance positions. I don't think it's it's enough to really stress stress the injury, and as we alluded to before, you know the likelihood is is that they were running in straight lines with with a sort of like you know high grade LCL injury anyway, and feeling pretty comfortable. You, you bob on in terms of the change of direction, you know that that's when um, that that's when you've got potential to um, to create that dynamic knee valgus that that may be occurring and and one of the components of knee valgus is, is you get external tibial rotation and it's, it's that that component that you know that that could it theoretically exceed your your low tolerance of the uh, of the lcl if it's happening at an angle close to 30 degrees um so again in, interestingly interestingly with that you know it's it's going to um, it's going to potentially occur at um, you know quite a specific speed. It, it might not be the, the 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 top end speed, although the forces are going to be greater there. You know, you may have decelerated to a greater degree into change of direction before that happens. But what we tend to focus on in these areas is just good change of direction mechanics. You know, controlling 
um, excessive lateral trunk flexion or rotation um, so that you're controlling the amount of uh, dynamic valgus that might be occurring and subsequently tibial external rotation, foot placement, getting that right again so you can limit the amount of tibial external rotation that's occurring. Um, so I think with knee injuries, what I would say is not wanting to contradict myself, there's, there's certain elements where you need to relate the biomechanics of the structure, the lateral collateral ligament, into your rehab, back to your mechanism, um, really important. But also, someone once told me that you're rehabilitating the knee and the leg. You're not just rehabilitating that injured structure. And when we're rehabilitating field sport athletes to a high level, change direction is going to be something that we need to nail in terms of the mechanics. Um, so if you are going through sensible progressions from your deceleration mechanics, then into your change of direction, you're building the angle at which you change direction, which is going to increase the forces associated with it. Um, it will increase the amount of deceleration that's required because we maintain speed when we're doing shallower angles. All these sorts of things is just about following a systematic process and considering the limb as a whole, rather than, I think, having to really look at the ins and outs and the specificities around the LCL at this point. And that's, I'm sure, something would apply to the way you do your uh, ACL rehab as well, um, which, uh, again, looking forward to sort of seeing how you roll through some of those things in the later stages, um, especially with the feedback that uh, you mentioned earlier. Mate, on to uh, probably the last sort of few key things to, t to talk to. Uh, kicking was one for these injuries. Now, both you mentioned it can be both kicking leg and the stance leg. Surely uh, working through our kicking progressions and how that sort of works is an important aspect of our rehab. Um, any key tips on this? Yeah, absolutely. So th this, is, this is something that um, definitely in, in kicking sports um, is generally the biggest concern. Um, for the athlete this is this is what they're they're most worried about um and um you'd be surprised at how how, how commonly you, you might see it as part of the mechanism of, of injury personally i think it's sometimes the straw that breaks the camel's back and there's an underlying injury there already and then it's 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 a ball strike tibial external rotation and and that is just the the, the end stage in terms of uh, you know the final nail in the coffin for the ACE LCL. So really, the key with this is it's you know it's it's the reactivity and the stiffness um, of the tibial rotators that you want to cope with the speed and intensity of ball striking. So the the evolution in rehab can be done differently. Um, We'll do a lot of work with bands um, to progress intensity and then also the speed of the um, kicking uh, velocity and progress that. Um, if you have a pulley system um, that can provide a power output at a set load, that's a really nice way of being able to uh, systematically progress your load and provide really nice feedback for the athlete as well. Um, and then you know, you have to think about how you're going to progress that when you get back on the pitch, be it the impact it's going to have on the injured stance leg or the injured kicking leg. For me, I still see this done suboptimally at times whereby 
the kicking progressions are based on distance. Um, but we, again, just going back to basic theory, but also there's evidence um, from the Aspatar group um, led by Rod Wiley that progressing based on uh, velocity of kicking is is much more accurate than a distance-based approach. And to to frame that, I could kick a ball a short distance with minimal load, or I could stand in front of a goal five yards away and kick the ball in as hard as I can. So a velocity-based approach is more around the intensity that you actually kick the ball rather than how far you kick it. So progress your kicking action based on intensity. And, and, and a very sort of rudimentary way of doing that would be just to break it down to low, medium, high intensity with the individual that you're working with and get them to progress accordingly. Make sure that you consider different modes of kicking. Often the individual will have a very specific kicking action um, that they're concerned about. And um, a common one would be, you know, um, in, in, intensely um side footing the ball, opening up the body at the same time and just maximizing that tibial external rotation that occurs at, at that point. And that's, you know, that that's very typical. And you know you need to make sure that your individual is comfortable with that at the very end stage. Matt, Matt super comprehensive uh, of our take through the process of LCLs. Is there, is there anything we've missed there that you think uh, is really important for us to cover off on? I don't, I don't think so. I think we've, I think we've hit the main points. Um, you know, if, if I was to summarise things, I think it's a really um, it's a really nice injury in terms of being able to apply your principles of biomechanics. You can work back to the mechanism of injury. You can work forward to how you're going to progress your rehab. But then when we get into really high-level function, there's specifics around the LCL, but also don't lose track of what we were saying. And, and you rightly pointed out, you're rehabilitating the knee as you would do any other complex knee injury um, and it's getting them back to that that functional level consider the the individual components that uh, specific to the LCL and then consider the global um, picture of rehabbing a knee perfect way to finish Matt uh, mate really appreciate your time I know you've got some clients waiting at rehab for performance so you better get back to them uh, but thanks for joining us and uh, mate look forward to catching up in Liverpool and talking uh, more things around knees absolutely look forward to seeing you